0: Okay, good morning, Dallas Bible Church, or good evening. I'm not really sure again when you're watching this, but we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us online this Sunday. My name is Zane Parsley. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Dallas Bible Church, and currently I'm filling in for our lead pastor, Aaron Armstrong, as he is on sabbatical with Kat and Caleb, and they're seeking the Lord in a period of rest and refreshment. And Aaron, if you're watching this, our prayers are for you and with you, and we hope to see you back here very soon. Well, this week we're continuing a series that we began two weeks ago called New Normal, Following Jesus When Everything Has Changed. The first week we talked about how when everything changes, God has not changed. And, and we, we, we talked about that in looking at Jesus' resurrection. Jesus doesn't change post-resurrection. He's the same God. So in periods of great change in our life, when things are transitioning, when things are revolving and spinning in ways that we don't understand, God is our constant. And for those of us who are Christians, we can have faith and hope that the resurrected Jesus is our constant. He doesn't change. The second week, we talked about how when everything changes, we need to seek God patiently. Because in a new normal things eventually become normal. They become redundant. They become cyclical. So it's important whenever we move into something new that we need to seek God with patience. And, and this week, I want to I shift gears a little bit. And, and I want to move on from that. And I want to talk about how we relate to our past as Christians. Because I believe we as Christians are uniquely gifted to be forward-facing into the future to leave our past behind and walk boldly into whatever God has for us. So to do that, we're going to continue our journey through John chapter 20 and 21. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to ask you to turn to um, John 21. I want to make sure we have the verse right. Yeah, let's go back a little bit to verse 12. So go ahead and be turning there. And John chapter 21, the the journey that we've been taking, has been one of discovery in a really nebulous time in Jesus' ministry. It's after his crucifixion and resurrection, but before his ascension and the coming of the Spirit in Pentecost. And there's lots of strange things going on there. There's lots of new realities that the disciples are navigating. And they're figuring out what their life is going to look like in the coming decades in a new normal. So if you've turned there, look with me, if you would, at verse 12, John 21, verse 12. We're picking up with the disciples. Jesus just revealed himself to them for the third time. They were fishing. He repeated a miracle from earlier in his ministry, and he's called them to the bank. And, and here they sit down with Jesus, and they see him. And in verse 12, Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, "'Who are you?' for they knew it was the Lord.' Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, so they're sitting on the banks, they're sitting on the beach, and and they're done eating, and they start talking. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus replied, feed my lambs. Verse sixteen. Again, Jesus said, "Simon, son of John, do you love me?" And John said, or sorry, Simon said, "Yes, Lord. You know that I love you." So Jesus said, "Take care of my sheep." And then a third time, Jesus said to him, "He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me?" And at this point, Peter's starting to get a little frustrated. He's had this conversation already twice, and and he's a little hurt by Jesus keep asking him the same question. And so, verse. Uh, Verse 17 says Peter was hurt because Jesus kept asking him this question. He said, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. We as Christians are uniquely gifted to move beyond the past and into the future because God in the gospel has removed our shame. Our shame is gone. Our task is given and our future is set. I want to talk about those three things in this passage, but let's pray first before we approach the word of God. Father God, we are so thankful that we have the opportunity to know you through your scripture. We are so thankful that we can gather as a church digitally and online right now during this strange and nebulous time in our lives. I recognize, Lord, that had this pandemic happened 15 years ago, that would be a really difficult thing for us. So thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us to enter in in the next few moments to your scripture and be submissive to the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Nearly a hundred years ago today, Warren G. Harding would make a speech at Boston College in Boston, Massachusetts, announcing his candidacy for the Republican nomination for the President of the United States. And in that speech, he would go ahead and reveal what his slogan was going to be for his presidency. Now, you've heard of hope and change. You've heard of Make America Great Again. These are slogans that are catchy, they sit in our ears, and they inspire us to something else. Warren G. Harding's slogan may not seem immediately that catchy to us right now in the 21st century. His slogan was, Warren G. Harding, return to normal. Now, again, that doesn't feel super catchy or inspiring. Return to normal. Okay, Warren, thanks for that. What's that mean? And also, I know that not many of us are super familiar with the Harding presidency, but for those of you who don't know about what life was like in 1920, it was a period of tremendous change in our country. We're talking about a group of people who are so tired of wearing masks. They've been in a pandemic for three years. Spanish influenza had swept around the globe twice already, coming back for a third run through, and it had wiped out millions of people worldwide. Subsequently, they're coming out of the greatest conflict the world has ever known, World War I, where Americans have lost millions of soldiers in this foreign war in Europe that was so unlike anything they'd ever experienced before. You're talking about a time in America's history where our neighborhoods were changing in ways that we did not expect, where we were previously used to hearing English spoken in our streets and now we're hearing Polish and Italian and Greek and Irish dialects and our neighborhoods look nothing like they did before because of rampant immigration, because of industrialization, because of urban drawl. The world in 1920 was not the world in 1900 and Warren Harding knew that so he stood up on the steps at Boston College and he said, Return to normal. Here's, here's actually what he said. Here's his speech, and it's full of lots of really good alliterations, but he says America's present needs not heroics, but healing, not nostrums, but normalcy, not revolution, but restoration, not agitation, but adjustment, not surgery, but serenity, not the dramatic, but the dispassionate, not experiment, but equipoise, whatever that means, not submergence and internationality, but sustainment and triumphant nationality. Let's return to normal. Let's go back in time, back to the good old days. You remember the 1900, or the 1800s? Those were the good days. Let's go back, return to normal. And it worked. Warren Harding would win in a landslide versus his opponent, James Cox from Ohio and Eugene V. Debs. He would win in a landslide, both in the electoral vote and in the popular vote because that was a message people wanted to hear. And I think that's a message that we want to hear too. I keep finding myself... In the time of this pandemic, I keep saying, well, when we get back to normal and we meet in church again together in a closed area and space, it'll be so great. Or when we get back to normal, we can have our friends over to our living room. Or when we get back to normal and we can go out to eat at a crowded restaurant. But if we look critically at the past and what Harding said in 1920, we can see that even if things begin to look normal again, you're never going to be the same. America in 1920 was never going to be like America in the 1800s. In fact, just mere decades after Harding would make that speech, America would experience the worst stock market crash it had ever seen and would ever see up till now with people living in abject poverty. It would see yet another world war just mere decades down the road. It would see increased industrialization, increased changing in philosophy and values. And America would never be the same. And it's the same for us. There's a tendency for us to look back on our pasts with fondness, to hold on to the past and create an idolatry of moving into the future. And it's one thing to talk about that with coronavirus. I would love to eat in a crowded Cracker Barrel this afternoon. I would love to go watch a live Mavs, Mavs game. Lives Mavs? A live Mavs game. I would love that. That would be incredible. It's another thing entirely to talk about wanting to go back to normal when it means... Wanting to have one last conversation with your father before the stroke. Before everything changed and your relationship would never be the same. It's one thing to talk about wanting to go back to normal, return to normal, as Warren G. Harding said, when that looks like going back to before that moment when you ruined everything in your marriage. And your kids and your wife will never look at you the same way. Those are the experiences that pull at our hearts. Those are the experiences that keep us from moving into the future in a healthy way. Well, today I want to talk about how I think Christians are uniquely gifted to deal with those kinds of scenarios. When the pull for new normal is corrupted by the pull for old normal, when we just want to get back from the past. Because when everything changes, we as Christians, we don't look back. Well, to talk about this, I think we're going to have to do some digging in Scripture. So we're going to be hopping back and forth between two chapters, chapter 21 of John and chapter 13 of John. So again, if you're at home and you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up and turn to John chapter 13, verse 33. So we're going to hop back in time. This is way before Peter sitting down with Jesus and eating on the beach. In fact, this is right before Jesus is going to be crucified. And what he's doing is he's sitting down with the disciples and he's telling them everything that they're going to need to know to be forward-facing into the future, to leave the past behind, to begin walking in holiness and walking in boldness in the absence of Jesus Christ. So he's teaching them all these things that they need to know about what it means to follow Jesus once he's gone. And in chapter 13, in verse 33, he says something that catches them off guard. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter's shocked by this. He he didn't see this coming. We've been following you for three years. Why can't I follow you now? So in verse 36, he says, whoa, hold on, Lord, where, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. So Peter says again, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Because I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. So here we see Peter. He's trying to hang on to something from the past. Lord, I don't know what you're talking about, about us not being able to follow you in the future, but we followed you in the past, and and I'm not going to give that up now. I will never deny you. I would die for you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We're moving you into something new. And then lo and behold, it happens just like how Jesus said. For those of you who know the story, you know that Peter would go on to do exactly what Jesus said. Uh, uh, Later that evening, Jesus would be arrested. He would be betrayed by his own disciple. He would be led in front of a tribunal. And Peter would stand outside the court and would deny Jesus three times. A servant came up to him and said, hey, don't you know that guy? Isn't he your best friend? And Peter said, no, I don't know who he is. Then again, someone came up and said, no, 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 I've seen you with him. You know Jesus, right? And Peter out of fear said, no, I don't know him. And then a third time, another individual came and said, No, you do. I, you do know him. And Jesus, or Peter said, I have no idea who you're talking about. And then he ran off and he wept. It happened just like how Jesus said. And I, I don't know how Peter was feeling at that moment. I know he was filled with remorse and with regret. But if I was Peter, I would be hanging on to some significant shame when I met Jesus again. So fast forward to the conversation on the beach. Jesus crucified, he comes back to life, and Peter is sitting down and talking with him. And and again, I don't know how Peter felt. I don't know if they've already talked about this or not, but I can only imagine that he's bogged down with a sense of shame where he wants to return to normal, return to the past, and take back that horrible thing that he said. Um, You know, I've had an interesting relationship with shame in my life. I've known how it can keep me from going into a productive future That God has from me. I've experienced that personally. And I think many of us listening to this have experienced that. We live in a culture that is very much defined by shame. And between internet culture or cancel culture or shame culture, we see that on display. We dig up old tweets, old quotes, old videos, and we point and we say, That's shameful. You're done. And we do that on a broad level nationally. And then we do that on a lower level personally, where we define people by mistakes that they've made. And again, that's something that I have dealt with in my own personal life. Um, I'm acquainted with the feeling of shame. I, I know what it's like to have periods in my life that I profoundly and deeply regret. Relationships that I have really messed up. And subsequently, people that I would hate to bump into at the mall because they saw me at my worst, Like Peter, denying Christ, they saw me doing something that I never thought I would do, and and that tends to move me towards, like Warren G. Harding said, wanting to return to normal. Can I just go back and take back that thing? Can I just reverse my shame? If I can just do something to take back what I've done that is wrong. But the Bible says that's not what we're required to do as Christians. I think we all know that to varying degrees, what it feels like to feel shameful when you look at your parents, when you look at your kids, when you look at your husband and wife or your friends, or even when you look at God. And that's what Peter is experiencing right here. And just to make a quick distinction, I I, I think we, we often have trouble bifurcating the difference between guilt and shame. When we talk about guilt, we're talking about being able to look back into your past and say, that thing was bad. When we talk about shame, we're talking about looking back into your past and saying, I am bad. And I wonder if Peter knows the difference. I wonder if Peter knows the difference between looking back on that moment of denial and saying, man, that was a bad thing, versus, I am bad. If he does, we don't know, but we do know in the conversation that Jesus has with Peter, he addresses shame head on in a way that makes Peter want to move on healthily into the future. Here's what he says, verse 15. Uh, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter. This is the first conversation they've had since the denial. Simon, son of John, do you love me? A pause right there. When he says Simon, son of John, he's doing something important. Uh, you don't see that phraseology a lot coming from Jesus in the Gospels. He's, especially in the Gospel of John, he's often calling Peter, Peter. That's the name he's invented for him, Peter. But his full name, his given name is Simon, son of John. There's only one other time in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus use these words in reference to his best friend, Peter. And that's at the very beginning of their relationship. In John chapter 1, when they're first meeting, Jesus walks up to Peter and says, hey, I know you, you don't know me. You're Simon, son of John. But from now on, I'm going to call you the rock. I'm going to call you Peter. And he does. He calls him Peter throughout the Gospel of John until this moment. Why is that? Well, I think what Jesus is doing in this conversation is systematically and intentionally repeating the circumstances of Peter's call to remind Peter that I called you in the beginning knowing you were going to do this, and I'm calling you now. So he says, Simon, son of John, and Peter's ears perk up. You don't call me that. Why are you calling me that? And then Peter begins to think about the past 15 minutes. Okay, we were sitting and waiting in Galilee, And I threw the nets on the other side of the boat and they began to break. You know, that was just like when Jesus first called me. And Jesus is repeating those circumstances to remind Peter that just as he first called him, he calls him now. You see, the gospel disintegrates shame in our life because if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ personally, you know that he called all of you. When he called you, he knew your future. He knew the shameful thing that would want to make you keep returning to the past. He knew it before you did it. And he said, I want that, Zane. I want that, Peter. Peter, I'm not surprised by what you did. I predicted it, remember? I knew you were going to do that. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about how I feel feel about you. I love all of you. And I wonder how many of you need to know this truth that when God chose you, He chose all of you. He chose the ugly parts of your past and your future, He knew the ways you would behave. It doesn't mean he gives you license to do them, but he knew them and he would call you again. This is how Christians are uniquely gifted to move past shame. Whatever the world tells you about your past sins, whatever the world tells you about what you are and what you will remain, Jesus tells you something different. He tells you, I called you, I love you, and your shame is obliterated because I knew it back then. I knew it when I first walked up to you and said, Simon, son of John. The gospel obliterates shame. When everything changes, don't look back because our shame is gone. I want to sit on this for just one more minute and give you something really practical that's been helpful for me in my battle versus shame. And and it may not be what you're looking for this morning, but I would just advise you, if you're really having trouble moving into your future in a healthy way, moving into your new normal in a healthy way, let other people in. And that might involve uh, bringing in a professional counselor. So we at Dallas Bible Church, we believe that The church is really supported and equipped well by professional men and women who deal with counseling, and we want to prioritize that in our church. So if you would, if you're feeling like you're bogged down by some shameful piece in your past and you want to talk with that about someone, I'm going to ask you to email the the email address below at the bottom of the screen, Dallas Bible Church, uh, Brian Radabaugh, B. Radabaugh at Dallas Bible Church. Send him an email and say, hey, I need to talk to someone. And if if finances is an issue and you're a member of DBC, we want to help you out with that too. So don't let a shameful event in your past keep you from moving on to what God has for you in your future. Jesus explicitly did away with Peter's shame. He said, I called you then, I call you now. When everything changes, don't look back because our shame is gone. Now, for some of us listening to this, our hesitation of moving into the future and leaving the past behind isn't because of shame. It's not because of something that happened in our lives, but instead it's because of indecision. And, uh, and I think we see this a lot in the church. The church often has trouble moving into the future because we don't know how to engage with the future. We don't know how to uh, serve Jesus in a brave new world. But Jesus takes care of that with Peter here, too, because he doesn't just take away his shame. He gives him a task. So when everything changes, don't look back because our task is given. Notice how Jesus doesn't just restore Peter and let him be. Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Okay, great. Good to hear that. No, he doesn't do that. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then he says, feed my lambs. He gives him a task You see, Jesus knows that in order to move Peter from point A to point B, it's not enough to just say, hey, everything's okay. He needs to give him a job to do. I'm envisioning a future where Jesus didn't say this, and it's a future where Peter stays home in Capernaum while the other 10 disciples go out and change the world. Okay, he wanted them to make disciples, but I'm the one who betrayed him. I'm the one who denied him. I'm just going to stay home. He didn't want that for Peter. Peter was his best friend. He gave him a task to accomplish. Um... I think this is particularly hard in churches. You know, I think we as churches idolize the past because we knew what to do in the past. I've been, uh, I've been attending Sunday services as long as I've been alive, and I can't tell you the amount of sermons I've heard that opine the future and look fondly on the past, where we talk about how we want to go back in time to when culture was on our side as a church, when the pews were full and people listened to the word of God, when our nation followed Jesus, and we look back nostalgically on, on good things in our past, and it prevents us from moving fully to the task God has given us in the future. God knows that in order to move us into the future, He gives us a task. I, uh, I was educated, my undergrad was in, uh, was in teaching science teaching actually. I went to Marshall University and I got a degree in biology education and one of the best tips and tricks that they taught me at teacher college and some of you who are watching this who are teachers like Amy Iatt or Jenny Smith, you all know this. One of the best tips or tricks is if you're having a student that you're having difficulty moving from point A to point B is you give them a job. So it works like a charm. I've done it in kids' life dozens of times. You give a kid a job and you've suddenly co-opted them into your cause. Hey, can you go ahead and clean the board? Thank you. Can you run down the hall and tell Miss Dawn such and such? Can you get this from the supply room? When you give a kid a job, it co opts them into your classroom. It moves them forward from point A to point B. And that's what we see with Peter. That's what we see with the church. God gives us a job to do. He moves us from point A to point B. And our job is the same today as it was 2000 years ago, make disciples. Culture may change around us, but our job remains the same. You make disciples. That's what God has told us to do. And it does not matter if we have a Christian president or a Muslim president. It doesn't matter if we live in a country with 300 million people or a country with three people. Our job remains the same. We move forward and we make disciples. And it keeps us from that idolatry of looking into our past, as Warren G. Harding said, and wanting to return to normal. You have been given a task, like Peter. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. So, again, the gospel uniquely equips Christians to be forward-facing because the God of the universe has removed our shame, our shame is gone, and our task is given, make disciples, and thirdly, because our future is good. Our future is good. This is a hard one. Um, I tend to idolize the past, and when my past doesn't look like my future, I tend to get anxious And I have trouble moving into it. So if we look at John 13, we look at a group of people that have been getting a crash course in what it means to trust Jesus, to go boldly into something new and leaving what they know behind. And Peter's really struggling with that. So again, we're jumping back and forth, jump back into John 13, the conversation they're having about denying Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, where I'm going, you can't come. Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will follow later. And Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life. Peter says, we got a good thing going. Why would you leave that behind? Jesus, I've been following you for three years. I've seen water turned to wine. I've seen Lazarus, our friend, raised from the dead. You, you remember Lazarus, right? I've seen you, my best friend, welcomed into Jerusalem like a king. Why would we leave that behind? And Peter has trouble envisioning his good future because It's idealized by his good past. And that's the case with many of us. Our vision of what a good future looks like is often informed by our experiences, our good experiences in the past. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, On its surface there's nothing wrong with that at all. There's parts of our past that have been good and kind to us. And those may be things that we want to hang on to. Those may be things that we want to replicate. But when they become an idol, and keep us from moving into something different and new and keep us from seeing the future as a good thing, it becomes a problem. So um, I just asked my wife's permission to share this story, and she said yes. Uh, My wife was raised in Washington State in a little town called Walla Walla. It's a beautiful place. It's in um, south central Washington. If you ever get the chance, you should go there. It's really idyllic when you drive through there. It's this beautiful small town Wonderful liberal arts college. Uh, It's just a great community. And her parents recently moved from Walla Walla to Dallas to take a new job. And in process, they sold my wife's childhood home, the home that she had lived in for 25, 26, 27 years. And that was a really hard transition for her. And this past year, we were sitting around as a family. I was at my in laws and we were talking about the house and we were reminiscing. And, you know, even for me who didn't grow up there, it was hard leaving behind something so good. Uh, For something so new and scary. And it was emotional and difficult, those conversations. And my eight-year-old sister-in-law said something really wise. Her name's Zara. She's from Ethiopia. She's hilarious. But she she piped up and she said, hey, but God was good to us in the past. We have lots of joyful things in the past. And so I think he's going to be good to us in the future. And we'll have good times in the future just like we did in the past, but they might look different. And we all turned and we looked at her. And we realized she was exactly correct. It's not wrong to want to hang on to good things in the past. That's not a bad thing. It is, however, difficult when it keeps us from moving confidently into God's good future. God's future for you is good. He has a good thing in mind. It may not be what you had in mind, but it is good. Look at what he has for Peter. Going back forward, again, jumping back and forth. Chapter 21, verse 18. Here he contrasts Peter's past with his future. Peter's expectations with what is actually going to happen. So verse 18, they're sitting on the beach again, they're eating, they're talking, and Jesus says, very truly I tell you when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. Hey, when you were young, Peter, you were free. You were impetuous. You were bold. You did whatever you wanted. You were a slave to no one, and I loved you for it. It was great. It was a great time in your life, but here's what I have for you in your future. He goes on to say, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. That phrase, stretch out your hands, that's a euphemism that you see in ancient literature that refers to a crucifixion. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says, When you were young, you were free. Uh, When you're old, you're going to get crucified. How's that sound? And I can only imagine in Peter's brain, that probably didn't smack like a fair trade at first. Okay, I'm giving up freedom. For crucifixion. Okay, uh, wait. Didn't you tell me I wasn't going to die for you? Can we go back to that? But Jesus says, "No, no, 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 no. Look, look here. I have a good future for you." And he paints a picture of an old man, who's grizzled, who's tired, and who is nailed to a cross. Uh, it's hard for me to envision that Peter was immediately on board for that future. And I think for us, it's hard for us to immediately leave behind the past to go into the future God has for it when it's not what we expected, when it doesn't look like that good past. But God's future for us is good. A few months ago, Tori called me out. Again, I tend to be a person who is sentimental about the past. It's one of the reasons why I haven't thrown away my childhood toys. For you kids who are watching this, you may have seen my YouTube videos where I've made videos with my toys. I have trouble getting rid of things from my past. I'm really sentimental. I'm nostalgic about things. And uh, I'm especially nostalgic and sentimental about my spiritual life. For those of you who have walked with Jesus for a number of years, you can probably look back on your life and remember a time when things were really clicking. Maybe it was when you first started reading your Bible regularly, or when you first were going to youth group, or when you first met Jesus years ago, but things were really clicking. In my life, that was in college. I really met Jesus in a new and powerful way in campus ministry at Marshall University. And I was reading my Bible daily, and I was spending time in prayer, and I was making disciples, and I was leading Bible studies, and I was evangelizing the lost. And I look back on that time in my life with great fondness. And like Peter, I want my future to look very much like that time in my past. So I've created an idol. Lord, I just want to get back to serving you like I did in college. That was so great. Can I have my relationship with you like that again? And, and in my life over the past decade or so, I, I've idolized that to a point where I've tried to recreate those situations in an unhealthy way. And when God doesn't meet me like he did in college, it destroys my faith. So a few months ago, getting back to the story, Tori called me out and we were laying down in bed and she said, Zane, I think I have a word for you from the Holy Spirit. This may sound weird, but I think God wants me to tell you that the way he related to you in the past is not the way he's going to relate to you in the future. And those things in college were really good, but you've got to let go of them and accept that God's future for you is going to be better. It's going to be different. He's going to speak to you differently. Your walk with him is going to look different. It's going to look strange, but it's going to be better. And again, I'm emotional, so I I began to cry. And I realized she was exactly right. I had held on to this good thing in my life. I couldn't let it go to the point where I had let my future become captive to that narrative I had set. And Jesus, in his conversation with Peter, is saying, you can't do that. When you were young, you were free. But now that you're old, you're going to follow me in a new and hard and difficult way. I wonder how many of us need to hear that today, that God has something different for you that doesn't look like it did in the past. But it's good. Your future is good. Here's the future God has for you if you're submitting to the Holy Spirit and if you are uh, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The future God has for you looks a lot like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the life God has for you. Does that not sound like a life you want? Who doesn't want a life characterized by joy, by love, by peace, and patience, and gentleness, and goodness, and self-control? That's the life and the future God has for his faithful believers. It may not look like the past, but there's joy in the future. And that's yet another reason why Christians are uniquely gifted to be future-facing. We can leave the past behind because God's future for us is good. So, in summary, I believe we as Christians, and if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, I just want to say this comes from personal experience that I personally have found it easier to leave the past behind because of my relationship with Jesus, because our shame is gone, our task is given, and our future is good. Well, it would be a real shame if I didn't discuss what that good future looked like for Peter, because yes, it would involve him being crucified, but between point A and point B, a lot of other incredible things would happen. So Peter would become the leader of a worldwide movement. Just weeks down the road from this conversation on the beach, he would preach Jesus' resurrection and his power and lordship in a way that would change the life of thousands of people at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would come and would work in Peter's life in a way that he could only dream when he was following Jesus before. He would see miracles. He would see people give their life to Jesus. He would see the greatest surprise of all when God took the gospel to the Gentiles. And he would live a life that was good, that was free of shame, that was occupied by a task, and was full of a bright and good future. Eventually, the time would come for Peter to do exactly what Jesus had prophesied. He would give his life for Jesus, and he would do it in crucifixion. Uh, That time came in AD 64 When a fire was set in Rome, some of you students of history may know this story. There was a fire in Rome, and uh, this is the capital of the Roman Empire. The emperor at the time, Nero, was looking to blame it on someone. So he did what all good emperors do, and he blamed it on the weirdos. He said, Christians have set fire in Rome. We need to execute them. So they started rounding up their leaders. And somewhere in the block of leaders was a man they called the Rock. Hey, we think we got their leader, the Rock. I'm sure Nero was happy. So they nailed Peter to a cross, and for me, it's hard not to envision that the words of his best friend are coming back to his ear. You will follow me. You will stretch out your arms and be led to a place you do not want to go. Tradition holds that he was crucified upside down. I don't know if that's true or not, but again, it's hard for me to envision that as he's closing his eyes, the words of his friend aren't coming back to him. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And so he does. He breathes his last, and he follows him into whatever new normal was next, and he would give his life for Jesus. Friends, I want to ask you to follow Jesus into a new normal. When everything changes, his future is for you. When everything changes, he has called us into peace and patience because we know that we serve a good God. When everything changes, we don't need to look back because our task is given, our shame is gone, and our future is good. Would you join me in that future? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for um, just showing us that the future can be a good thing and not just a scary thing. Lord, we know that so many of us have decisions to make about that future right now immediately for the fall. And I just pray for wisdom for those who are making those decisions about school and about work and about relationships. Um, But that in that wisdom, we would be given a hope and that we would be given optimism and joy to know that you have given us a good future where our shame is gone and our task is given. Help us not to neglect that task, but may we as a church adapt. May we learn to make disciples in a new normal. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your son, and it's in his name I pray.